0: Welcome to the Nancovers podcast. It's the 17th of February 2022 and I hope you guys are having a good day or had a good day depends on when this podcast is posted because today I'm very busy but it's okay because this is something that I like to do and there is not going to be an excuse coming from my side at any given point in time living your life as an example is the most important thing sometimes and the more I show up in front of the mic and try and talk to it the more I'm able to connect with myself and my thoughts so that I'm able to connect to my listeners and I want to thank everyone thank you to all the new listeners thank you to all the older listeners and uh, if you're listening to this and haven't subscribed to the podcast uh, do that pick up your finger and put it on the subscribe button and smash that button for me Um, yeah moving on to the motivation for the day which is uh, by Colonel M.M. M. Nehru. Colonel M.M. M. Nehru is, uh, is an amazing guy. I haven't met him yet, but I have uh, his book with me in front of me. It's called The Practical Guide to Becoming an Officer. And in this book, there is an essay which talks about officer-like qualities and he puts an abbreviation on it like all army officers do. Uh, all, all army people do like to keep it crisp. He calls it OLQs, Officer Like Qualities. Officer like qualities sought in SSB develop in routine life over a period of time. Trying to memorize the 15 OLQs and then understanding their definition and assessment is a task best left to assessors. Understanding the assessment techniques by candidates is a mere wastage of time as it is a complex task that is not required of them. A candidate should be aware of being assessed as adequate in the following qualities. Reasoning and organizing ability, communication skills, sociability, leadership, willpower and determination. What aspirants should understand is that an average candidate getting selected would have in his or her career done the following. And these are pointers. I want everyone to listen to them as carefully as possible. Even if you're a candidate for uh, getting selected in the army or I would highly encourage even the others to pay attention to this, studied sincerely and understood what was taught well, played some games, and done some physical fitness exercises, have led a reasonably organized life, have been involved in organizing some events at home or school slash college, and hence would have the ability to organize an event if required, would have some friends at school slash college and good relations with family members, he or she would have been helpful in social interactions and would respect and regard others would have been involved in some leadership roles like house captain, team captain, prefect, EDC, and develop abilities to positively influence a group and work effectively as a leader, as a subordinate and a team member, would have developed willpower and determination through tough times faced at home and school, college, like exams and other pressure deadlines oriented tasks, would have some hobbies and interests, and would have been involved in some extracurricular activities, which have aided personality growth in fields other than the prescribed curriculum would have a reasonable interest in knowing about national and international events and social issues and have an independent opinion on them. This is so important having an independent opinion on them because a lot of times we just get swayed by what the public thinks and we do not are not able to come up with our own thoughts. Reasons for deficient, deficient, deficiencies in officer-like qualities It would be apparent from the discussions that the above should be a very normal profile of a candidate. Such a candidate would be selectable. Nothing extraordinary is required. Unfortunately, a large number of candidates do not develop these qualities because of their growth lacks balance. This misbalance is caused by undue focus on marks and wastage of considerable time in attending extra tuition classes. This is happening with so many kids these days and it has happened with kids uh, since the beginning of modern education that a lot of us are uh, are having our undue focus on marks and uh, a lot of time is being wasted on extra tuition classes dude there were there were kids in my school that i remember that used to get off from school and go straight to tuition and come back home at about 10 p.m every day um i hope they're doing good i don't really i'm not connected with them anymore (laughs) how to develop officer-like qualities if you have led a normal life of a student, as discussed above, then there is no problem. You would have adequate OLQs. However, if you have led marks obsessed with no sports, no extracurricular activities, and a tuition-rich life, then there are chances of having personality deficiencies. Please understand that no coaching academy in the world can develop deficient OLQs sought in the SSB in 15 days of intensive coaching. We at NFA, which is his, um, organ- which is his tuition? I'm not sure what NFA is. I have to yet to read this book, but by Colonel M. M. Nehru, have prepared a method of developing the deficient qualities and focused effort over a period of time. Identification of the weak aspects is the first course of action. This is to be followed by the construction of a long-term practical plan to overcome the identified weakness. The rate of improvement will vary from person to person, and depends upon the individual's competence and commitment. The method is quite effective. Anybody who has committed themselves to do this method totally have emerged highly competent and effective at what they do. I wanted to read this um, little excerpt from the book, uh, The Practical Guide to Becoming an Officer by Colonel M.M. Nehru. I would uh, urge all young people and also people from all ages to check this book out, even if you're wanting to become an officer in the Indian Army or not, because I feel personality development is one of the most important skills in the 21st century. Our ability to communicate with people, communicate with others, and being somebody who can, you know, be a little sociable, have fun, create events, be a leader in your own life. Even if in school, you know, sometimes we used to look at these prefects and captains and head boys and head girls and used to think, hey man, such dummies. But at the same time, these things are important because that is what developed personalities of a lot of people. And some people actually need that. So this was actually quite uh, an insightful little essay by Colonel M.M. Nehru. Do check him out. And we're gonna move on with the news now. There's a lot happening in this world. And I hope you guys are keeping tab over everything that's going around you. Because that is very important. Moving on, as a lot of you might already know, the legendary disco singer Bappi Lahiri, Lahiri Sir has, is no longer with us. He left us to one of uh, a few disorders that I'm extremely fascinated by which is obstructive sleep apnea and I would be reading about this uh, after I read a little bit about Bappi Lahiri to you guys and uh, a lot of Indians would know him to be the guy who brought the western quote unquote popular culture into our uh, into our culture. And, um, yeah, man, he his music was a little ahead of the its time, you know. He brought the disco music to the Indian masses back in the 80s, ba- when, you know, we kind of had like that era of the angry young man and things were a little like, you know, the industrialist was looked at as a bad person. There were a lot of young people, the boomers' generation. And, um, yeah, Bappi D- B- Larry was a legendary... Um, ahead of its time, kind of a cultural icon. He used to wear all these blings, you know, the gold chains. And a lot of young people probably these days might not, n- you know, really know about... Even I don't actually, too much, to be honest. Like, you know, I remember his, one of his songs, that said, Chalte chalte mere ye geet yaad rakhna, kabhi kehna, kabhi na Was it his song? I'm not sure. (laughs) No, but Bappi Lahiri, uh, R.I.P. And um, yeah, there's a little write-up in the Indian Express by Suanshu Khurana. And uh, it says, he brought disco to the mainstream in the 80s, set feet tapping across India. Before the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, Bappi Lahiri's Jimmy 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 Aja 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 Jimmy Jimmy <laughs> A popular disco pop pop uh, number from Mithun Chakrabarty's disco dancer I am a disco dancer ba, ba, ba. Was a huge hit in the USSR of the 80s Starved of any western popular culture, the countries grooved to Lehri's version of the disco Glittery jumpsuits, hundreds of twinkling light bulbs and Chakrabarty's pelvic moves accompanied by Lahiri's synths, horns, rhythm guitars, and syn- syncopated, bass lines. syncopated bass lines. Lahiri 69, who heralded discopop and ruled film music in the 70s and 80s with a string of chart-topping songs, died in Mumbai on Wednesday due to obstructive sleep apnea. A lot of us have this condition without even knowing about it because sleep apnea is one of those conditions where it happens when we are sleeping. And if you're not sleeping with somebody, if you're sleeping alone, a lot of time this goes undiagnosed and it can be so detrimental to a quality life. Anyway, he had been in hospital for almost a month and had only returned home on Monday. He survived by son Bappa Lahiri and daughter Rema Lahiri. Lahiri learned music from his Bengali singer parents Aparish and Bansuri Lahiri in Jalpaiguri, West Bengal. And his maternal uncle, actor and playback singer Kishore Kumar. After learning the basics of classical music from his parents, including some training in tabla, Lahiri moved to Mumbai when he was 19 years old and began creating music in an industry dominated by Adi Burman, Lakshmikant Pairairal, and Kalyanji Anandji, among others. He may have begun his career with compositions for Bengali film Dadu. But his Bollywood debut came 2 years after he set foot in Mumbai with Nanha Shikari 1973 starring actors Dev Mukherjee and Tanuja directed by Tanuja's husband Shom Mukherjee the film didn't do too well on the musical charts after a few successful attempts Lehri finally hit it out of the park with 3 films in 3 successive years Zakmi 1975 Chalte Chalte 1976 and Aapki Khathir, 1977, while quote, Ao Tumhe Chand Pe Le jaye zakmi sung by Lata Mangeshkar, Sa- sung by Lata Mangeshkar was noticed. It was Asha Bhosles and kishore Kumar's Jalta Hai jiya Mera that had the country swinging to it. Then came Kabhi Alvida Na Kehna. Yeah, man. The title song for Chalte Chalte that was to become the farewell song for years to come, followed by the fun. Bombay say, mera dost, dost ko salam karo. But Lahiri was yet to hit his commercial peak, that came in the 80s and it began with Lahiri giving the world a peek into his world of disco through Hari Om Hari, Pyara Dushman 1980. He got singer Usha Uthup, the toast of Trinkas, the famed restaurant and the famed restaurant and performance venue at Kolkata's Park Street, to croon the piece. The the song shot to fame, but disco as a genre was yet to break ground in the country. That happened with the spirited and electronic Disco Dancer, I Am a Disco Dancer, sung by Vijay Benedict, was arranged and remains etched in the nation's collective memory. It created a disco subculture that was previously non existent. This was followed by chart topping hits in Namak Halal 1982 and Dance, 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 Dance 1987. There were others like Himmatwala 1983 and Sharabi in 1983 as well. A part of Amitabh Bachchan's success in the 80s can be credited to Lehri and his unique songs like mm-hmm. de, de, pyaar de, pyaar "De De De Pyar De 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 De" and Oh, I can't like sing this song because I don't remember it, but yeah, a lot of you might. He made bhosle attempt disco pop with "Jawani Janeman. Rath Baki. Oh, that was a sensual song. These songs had unique personalities and extended themselves to the actors that portrayed them. Then there was Kalyung Kachashma, Jyoti in 1981, the Lata Mangeshkar song which became more famous as a remix in the 90s. Uthub called Lehri a trailblazer, trendsetter, and innovator in her video statement about the composer. Quote, All the new sounds, computing and programming began with him. There are so many of us musicians today who got Roti kapra makan because of him. A simple man with a heart of gold. I feel, little, uh, I feel a little pained by the fact that when he was alive, he wasn't appreciated as much. He was a true game changer whose contribution can never be forgotten, she said. Playback singer and pop star Alicia Chennai, who sang extensively for Lahiri, Including the popular Zubi dooby dubi dooby Zubi Disco Dandia and I am a bad girl nineteen eighty nine said that Lahiri said that Lahiri was a pathbreaker and he along with composer Biddu and Nazia Hassan brought Disco to India. Quote I was singing jingles at the time and Bappi Da was looking for a voice with some Western sensibility. I happened to fit the bill and there was no looking back. Back in the day, essentially all the soundtracks were about petty melodies, pretty melodies. Bappi Da came and redefined the music we were hearing. He brought disco and fused it with melody, which made it interesting and different, said Chennai, who recorded a Bengali song for Lahiri a couple of months ago. Lahiri's range also extended to Ghazal's, a genre that rose to popularity in India in the 1980s. His composition Kisi Nazar Ko, 1985, is still celebrated for being one of the finest films of Ghazals. Larry also enjoyed singing and often sang for himself as well as for other composers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm getting a little lost in this article, but I love it. While the 80s aren't considered the finest years in Hindi cinema, music, Lahiri's melodies were very influential, turning him into a pioneer of disco in India. He never paid much attention to allegations of plagiarism or talk about his flamboyant sartorial choices. He adorned his gold jewelry, wore it with aplomb, and could eat fish curry every day. Damn son, get some. Lahiri was the first Indian composer to make it to the Grammys Jury in 2012. I didn't know that. Lahiri was the first Indian composer to make it to the Grammy Jury in 2012. He also had a brief stint in politics. He joined the BJP in 2014 and fought the Lok Sabha elections but lost. He lost in 2014 which is quite surprising because BJP literally won everything that they kept their hand on but whatever. Lahiri will forever be remembered as the musician who brought disco to the mainstream in India. If one were to visit Russia and sing Jimmy 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 today, the reply from the locals may well be Aja Aja Aja. That's the impact he leaves behind. Thank you so much for your contribution to Indian music and uh, I hope your soul rests in peace, uh, Bapilehri sir. Take it easy man. I actually want to bring my attention to uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep apnea is something that I'm fascinated by because I did not know how many people it actually affects, uh, young and old. And this is an article uh, by Dr. Raj Das Gupta in Healthline and I want to read this out to my readers so that there is a little more awareness and understanding about what obstructive sleep apnea is and what uh, somebody can do to diagnose themselves and also if they know they have it, to treat it. Because I think the treatments for these are some, like, there's a dehumidifying machine that you need to have in your house. And it's better to diagnose these kind of things earlier with every disease like that. And a lot of people are not really ready to ha- ready to accept the fact that they have obstructive sleep apnea. I remember my ex-girlfriend used to have this, you know. Um, I'm, I'm no doctor, but I really felt like she could not breathe in the middle of the night because her uh, nasal tract would just close up and... It just seemed like this person was gagging for air, and I've, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have seen uh, loved, one, loved ones around them um, kind of having a situation like this. So, what is obstructive sleep apnea? Obstructive sleep apnea is a disorder caused by the repetitive collapse of the upper airway during sleep. It is the most common sleep related breathing disorder. OSA, from here on, we'll call it OSA um occurs when the muscles supporting the soft tissues in your throat such as your tongue and soft palate relax this causes your airway to narrow or even close momentarily cutting off your breathing damn normally air should flow smoothly from the mouth and nose into the lungs at all times including during sleep periods when breathing stops completely are called apnea or apneic episodes in osa the normal flow of air is repeatedly stopped throughout the night. OSA is the most common among older males, but it can affect anyone, including children. The incidence rises following menopause, such that the rates are similar in men and postmenopausal women. Snoring is often associated with OSA, especially if the snoring is interrupted by periods of silence. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. Snoring is caused by airflow squeezing through the narrowed airway space. It is important to remember that snoring doesn't necessarily indicate something potentially serious and not everyone who snores has OSA. Untreated OSA can cause serious health problems such as high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, atrial fibrillation, abnormal heart rhythm, pulmonary hypertension. Proper diagnosis and treatment are essential for preventing complications. What are the symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea? Most people with OSA complain of daytime sleepiness. Man, I might be having it on some days, (laughs) that's why I need my coffee sometimes. OSA causes episodes of decreased oxygen supply to the brain and other parts of the body, so sleep quality is poor. This causes daytime, drowsiness and a lack of clarity in the morning. Those who share beds with people with OSA may report the following. Loud snoring, gasping, choking, snorting, interruptions in breathing while sleeping. These symptoms are also often detected when checking on another complaint or during health maintenance screening. People with OSA may also experience the following symptoms, morning headaches, feeling disgruntled or grumpy, forgetfulness, drowsiness, repeated awakenings throughout the night. Other symptoms include hyperactivity in children, worsening depression, poor job and school performance, loss of interest in sex. Daytime drowsiness puts people with sleep apnea at risk for motor vehicle crashes and industrial accidents. Damn. Daytime drowsiness is extremely disastrous for so many people who have to work behind a car. Motor vehicle crashes and industrial accidents. Treatment can help to completely relieve daytime drowsiness. So, I wanna actually skip to the good part which is what are the solutions for treatment options yes the goal for treatment of osa is to make sure airflow isn't obstructed during sleep treatment methods include the following and this is gonna this makes a lot of sense weight loss weight management and exercise are usually recommended for people with osa who also have obesity um man (laughs) i don't want to say anything more don't talk ill about the dead Although it may not lead to complete remission, weight loss has, has been shown to decrease the severity of OSA. Losing weight if your doctor has recommended it could also reduce blood pressure, improve your quality of life and decrease daytime sleepiness. Continuous Positive airway Pressure, CPAP That's the machine I was talking about. CPAP, Continuous Positive airway Pressure, is the first line of treatment for OSA. It is administru- administ- administered through a face mask, face mask worn at night. The face mask generally delivers positive airflow to keep the airways open at night. The positive airflow props the airways open. CPAP is highly effective treatment of OSA. For people with mild or moderate OSA who don't benefit from CPAP therapy, an oral appliance is a o- reasonable alternative to positive air pressure. Bi-level positive airway pressure, BPAP Bi-level positive airway pressure machines are sometimes used for the treatment of OSA if CPAP therapy is not effective. Mm -hmm. BPAP machines, sometimes called BPAP machines, have settings that deliver two pressures in response to your breathing. Inhaled pressure and exhaled pressure. This means the pressure changes during inhaling versus exhaling. This means the pressure changes during inhaling versus exhaling. Sleeping on your side. Since sleeping on your back, supine position can make OSA worse for some people. Positional therapy is used to help you learn to sleep on your side. And uh, the inevitable, uh, not the inevitable, but something I think should be of the last resort for people uh, who have mild cases is called surgery. Surgery, bye bye. There is no cons- consensus regarding the role of surgery in adult patients with OSA. In general, you may consider surgical therapy when CPAP or BPAP machines or an oral appliance aren't effective. Surgical treatment may be the most cost-effective for people who have OSA due to a severe surgically correctable obstructional lesion of the upper airway. Being a surgical candidate depends on factors such as your desire to have surgery. If you have a surgically correctable problem, you have overall health to undergo surgery. Surgical treatment for OSA provides long-term benefits in some patients, although the complete elimination of OSA is not achieved depending on specific procedure. I wanted to read about sleep apnea and bring attention of my readers to this. And I hope that um, none of my listeners go through apnea. And even if they do, man, sometimes things happen and we don't have much control over these things. But it's good to diagnose. It's good to be open to the fact that you might have an issue and get it treated by a medical professional so rip uh, rip papillary and thank you for bringing attention to sleep apnea and uh, i hope everybody sleeps well because sleeping is very very important moving on i would want to read a news a piece of news which i think is of immense national importance and this talks about the production of food grain which is likely to hit a new record For 2021 2022, and this is a source from the government. The total food grains production in the country is pegged to reach an all time record high of 316.06 million tons as per the second advance estimates of production of major crops for the agricultural year 2021 22, released by the Ministry of Agriculture and Farmers' Welfare on Wednesday. The estimated food grains production for agricultural year 2122 is 1.71% higher than 310.74 million tons recorded in 2020-21, and the targets set for the current year show the estimates. It shows that wheat production is also expected to reach at the highest ever level of 111.32 million tons during 21 which is 1.58% higher than 109.59 million tons during the last year. The total production of rice, Kharif and Ravi both, is also expected to reach an all-time record high of 127.93 million tons, which is 2.86% higher than the last year's rice product output of 124.37 million tons. In, in 2021-22, the production of nine oil seeds. Groundnut, castor seed, sesame, Niger seed, soya bean, sunflower, rapeseed, and mustard, linseed, and sunfla- safflower? I've never heard of this. Safflower is estimated at 371.47 million tons, which is 3.34% higher than 359.46 million tons recorded during the last year. The rabi oilseed production is expected to reach 133.32 million tons in the current year which is 9% higher than the last year's figure of 122.24 million tons. The production of rapeseed and mustard which is the main rabi oilseed crop. The production of rapeseed and mustard which is the main rabi oilseed crop is expected to reach at a record level of 114.59 million tons. higher than last year's figure of 102.10 million tonnes. The increase in rapeseed and mustard production is significant because the edible oil prices, particularly mustard oil prices, have soared to a record high in recent months. According to data available on the ministry's website, on 16th February 2022, the All India average retail price of groundnut oil was reported at Rs 179.42 kg per kg mustard oil at 190 per kg vanaspati at 141 per kg soya oil at 147 per kg sunflower oil at 160 per kg and palm oil at 131 per kg the average retail prices of these six edible oils are higher in the range in the range 10.34% to 30.49% when compared to the prices a year ago the edible food, food price the edible oil prices shot through uh, a few months back and it created a lot of panic among uh, people because um, oil is basic oil is exp- uh, oil is uh, so essential to our daily needs the pulses production is estimated to increase by 5.87% to 26.96 million tons in 2021 22 from 25.46 million tons in the last year among pulses, gram production is estimated to reach 13.12 million tonnes during the current year from 11.91 million tonnes during the last year. In a statement, Union Agricultural Minister Narendra Singh Tomar said that the new record of food grains production in the countries is the result of hard work of farmers, efficient research of scientists and farmer-friendly policies of the government. I would want to congratulate all the people who are going to benefit from something like this um, including the people who are directly benefited by the PDS which is the public distribution system and uh, I hope a lot of these excessive uh, the record high production of these things are not set to waste because a lot of time this happens that uh, wheat goes to waste vegetables go to waste and uh, we would not want this to happen to our bumper stocks. So it's a very good news, although I do hope that the prices go low, for, especially for the oils, because uh, people need uh, calories and people need to be able to have oil in their houses that they can afford and are healthy for them. Moving on, I would like to bring my attention to uh, an editorial written about the need to insulate economic policy making from politics and vested interests of businesses. I think this is super important because economic policies need to be focused on the people rather than focusing on the lens of what politicians want or what vested interests in businesses want. There are a lot of businesses that have a lot of influence in policy making and so do a lot of politicians because they want to pander to a certain type of people at a certain given point in time because of electoral needs. But the most important thing to remember is that economic policy making needs to be insulated from these Western interests. So this uh, editorial written by Rajat Katuria and Mansi Kadia is something that I would like to read and bring the attention of my, my attention and the listener's attention to um, here. Yeah. Rajat Katuria is uh, a Dean School of Humanities and Social Sciences, Shiv Nadar University and Mansi Kedia is a uh, indian council for research on international relations senior fellow so here it goes the sudden withdrawal of farm laws last year and the repeal of the land acquisition ordinance in 2015 are two examples of policy bla- backsliding in an otherwise decent record of policy continuity since 1991 one might justifiably quibble over tariff increases over the last several budgets to promote but the overall trajectory of tariffs has been downgraded, has been downward, and average tariffs are now below 10 percent compared to over 400 percent before 1991. However, there is no reason to believe that such has not happened in the past and will not occur in the future, given the fact that political input in economic policy making is becoming dominant as a regional and state-level issues assume overriding significance it's perhaps time to consider sheltering economics from politics and vice-versa. We might add for good measure that politicians and economists have a love-hate relationship. They can't do without each other, and yet politicians routinely mock economists as living in their ivory towers, while economists deride politicians as lacking analytical tools for making robust, political, making robust public policy choices. This may be an oversimplification, but you get the drift. History is replete with examples of political influence in the legislative process, as well as in the implementation of policy. While most such instances are discouraging like the ones cited above, there are many rare cases of creative use of multilateral commitments to engage in tricky domestic reform. As as a favoured rule, domestic policy priorities should not be held hostage to external pressures but they can and ought to be used to push through difficult and desirable domestic reform. For example, India's entry into the World Trade Organization mandated recognition of product and processes, patents that were politically hard to embrace Where, when the dominant model in manufacturing was one of, quote, reverse engineering. It was possible to offload the political fallout to a non-negotiable multilateral commitment. For similar reasons, crisis-driven reform has a lot of resonance in almost all environments, including ours. Relying on chance events to drive reform might work in rare circumstances, but not when the aspiration is to become a $10 trillion economy by 2030. Realizing this target or even coming close to it will require sustained growth over 15% per annum in nominal GDP. That's no mean task. Recall that the golden period of India's growth fetched an 8.1% increase in real GDP between 2004 and 2009. Even during this period, the growth story was cut short by the global financial crisis and devilling intermittently by institutional weakness. The coal scam or, and the coal scam and the 2G scam are examples of inability of institutions to keep pace with the rapid growth. This is a characteristic of most market-based economies in which institutions play catch-up, since institutional change is much slower. As growth occurs, institutions also require sophistication, knowledge, and some not complete protection from political interference. For example, the promulgation, the promulgation of the Monetary Policy Committee in 2016 replaced RBI's internal decision-making drive driven by the central bank governor to include three external experts appointed by the central government to strengthen and bring transparency into monetary policy decisions. MPC minutes are published for wider consumption. This can be extended to other important government functions such as the budgetary process, successive finance commissions and fiscal responsibility and budget management review committees have recommended the creation of a fiscal council that like the MPC will bring transparency in the budget making process. The idea is simple, moderate the influence of the political agenda and powerful interest groups that could and often do capture the process. Policy making is nothing if not art that invokes science when when expedient. However, science ought to become more integral to the policy formulation process in India And for that to happen, crucial changes are necessary in the ecosystem. Domain experts should be an integral part of the formulation process. Implementation, of course, can be left to the executive. We have often heard a cliche in policy circles. Policy is too important to leave to the experts. That, no doubt, is a clever turn of phrase, but it's not helpful. When the TRAI was first set up, It had a healthy combination of domain experts and public policy professionals, resembling a specialized regulatory agency that reflected a serious intent to strengthen capability. Capacity was limited then, but the intent was clearly visible. In the quarter century since, more and more professionals are now available in India as universities offer courses on regulation and public policy. The diaspora has always been available to fill the gap. Instead of going down the chosen path, TRAI has reverse gear, and today resembles a government department. In fact, this is the same affliction with almost all regulatory and policy institutions that are now a feature of India's increasingly market-based economy. As more sectors, for example, Gati Shakti initiative, engage the private sector, lessons from the last quarter century should not be wasted. Domain expertise is conspicuously conspicuous by its absence in regulatory and policy institutions. Domain expertise is conspicuous by its absence in regulatory and policy institutions. Commissions tend to be made up of retired civil servants or retired judges. This is worrying and therefore it is vital to create a cadre of professionals with technical expertise for the complex tasks of managing the policy process. Lest we be misunderstood, We have nothing against retired officers. Retired bureaucrats could be excellent for policy institutions, but not as in the case now, as an entitlement. The net needs to be cast wider so that politics and policy are distant, not completely but certainly more than it is today. The recent unravelling of bizarre episode of regulatory breaches at the National Stock Exchange is just another example of why we need more regulatory expertise. India should not be in a situation in which it is in perpetual hostage to the vested interests of politics and business when agencies tasked with protecting public interest identif- identify okay when agencies tasked with protecting public interest identify with priorities against the interest of the public they fail to protect the public i think this was a beautiful article and uh, it is putting across a case for having specialists, domain experts, for commissions and for regulatory bodies and for other governmental organizations that have their focus on policymaking. Mm-hmm. Having retired judges, having retired bureaucrats in these committees and commissions is a, is, could be a good sign, but at the same time, I think an expertise is undervalued a lot of times and uh, the case of trai is actually quite interesting and i would want to know why has it become like a government department i hope to be able to speak to mr rajat kathuria or Mansi Kedia to have a little more discussion about this moving on to a piece of news about uh, the ukraine and uh, russia and uh, nato germany all of that universe all of, a lot of us know what's happening with Russia building its troops on the borders of Ukraine and they can, there can be an invasion by them and at any given point in time, especially if you listen to the US narrative. Although there is this really interesting angle to the entire situation, which is about the Nord Stream gas pipeline. And the more I research about this, I kind of feel like this could be the, the, the throbbing vein, which is, you know, making US a little bit uneasy. Because uh, Russia is an ex- Russia is an exporter of gas, and countries like Germany, France, Poland, even Italy is highly dependent, almost to the tune of 25% of their um, gas needs are met by Russia. And there is a pipeline that is being created between Russia and Germany, which will go through the sea, um, undercutting Ukraine. Um, yeah. I want to do lesser arms and get straight into the topic because it's something that i also want to be uh, you know i want to know what's going on here so russia has announced withdrawal of some troops from the ukraine border but u.s concerns remain remain around the russia to germany nord stream 2 gas pipeline geopolitics involved in this are very interesting so let's dive deeper the Ukraine crisis appears to have turned a corner with, the Rush- with Russia declaring it has withdrawn some troops from the border, but an elephant in the room remains, called Nord Stream 2. It is an undersea gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, but is perceived by some as a geopolitical weapon. Ukraine is angry with the pipeline because it is bi- it bypasses the country and thus denies its... Tr- Denies its transit fees for Russia's gas exports. It has also raised fears that Russia could cut off gas supplies to Ukraine without endangering its own gas exports to Europe. It could give Russia complete dominance over gas supplies to Europe and leverage and influence over these countries. It has also awakened old fears in some countries about Russia and Germany coming together against the rest of of Europe. Damn, sometimes we really are haunted by our past time. Some EU members have security concerns about Russian presence in their waters, required to guard the 1,222-kilometer pipeline that goes under the Baltic Sea, past Finland, Sweden, and Poland before entering Germany. America's concern concerns the U.S. believes the pipeline could could give Russia too much leverage and influence over Europe, increases the threat of Russian invasion of Ukraine, and hinders its own effort efforts to contain Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Now that I think about it, that's why I see all of these press releases by the White House talking about how Russia is going to invade Ukraine. They are doing a lot of fear mongering because that's what they said. If Russia invades Ukraine, then they are going to make sure that the Nord Stream pipeline does not happen. Maybe that could be the reason that the US actually want Russia to... um, you know, they attack Ukraine so that they have an excuse to attack Russia and make sure that this pipeline doesn't happen, which could give Russia a lot of leverage in the U- in the European continent. But anyway, coming back to the article. The US has been opposed to the project from the start, but Germany under then-Chancellor Angela Merkel pushed ahead with it. Despite the strain in Moscow-Berlin ties over the Alexei Navalny affair, Merkel bl- blamed the Kremlin... Kremlin? Kremlin... <laughs> For the attack on the Russian opposition leader. The $11 billion pipeline was completed in September 2021. It is awaiting German certification to become operational. German certifications always take time. Anyway, even before the Ukraine crisis, the US had imposed some sanctions against it. Although in May 2021, the Biden administration waived two sanctions that would have torpedoed it entirely in a bid to give diplomacy a chance. In July, President Joe Biden and Merkel sat down to talk, agreeing in broad terms that Russia would not be allowed to use the pipeline as a weapon against Ukraine. But Merkel also said the two sides had, quote, come to a different assessment as to what this project entails. The two leaders were seen to have prevented a breakdown of the transatlantic alliance that the US sanctions against Germany and other supporters of the pipeline in Europe, notably France, Austria and Netherlands, might have brought about. But some also saw it as a surrender by the US. Over the last few weeks, Biden and other US officials have been vocal that if Russia invades Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 would be among the first casualties. If Russia invades, that... That means tanks or troops crossing the border of Ukraine again. Then there will be, there will be no longer a Nord stream 2," Biden said during a joint news conference with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. We will bring an end to it. I promise you we will be able to do it. End quote. Damn man. Um, according to some analysts, the US sees the coming together of Russia and Germany in an economic partnership as a precursor to upending its role as the guarantor of security in Europe and Nord Stream 2 as a threat to an arrangement that has existed from the end of World War II and the start of Cold War. Scholz's Diplomacy Scholz, who is the Chancellor of Germany, who undertook the US visit in response to a criticism at home and abroad that he has been, caught missing in action during the Ukraine crisis, even as French President Emmanuel Macron took the lead with his shuttle diplomacy between Kiev and Moscow, held out that reassurance that Germany was not about to break away from its NATO allies. Quote, We are one voice and do things together, and we made it very clear that if there was any military aggression against Ukraine, this will entail severe consequences that we agreed upon together, Scholz said. But it was noticed that he did not utter the word Nord Stream during his visit. Obviously, because Russia is dependent on Russian, uh, Germany is dependent on Russian gas. Why would he? Like Macron, Scholz Shol- also held talks with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and proceeded next to Moscow for talks with Putin. Even as they reiterated their different op- positions and demands, Russia announced on the same day that it had quote, partially withdrawn troops from the Ukrainian border. It is unclear if Russian troops withdrawal had anything to do with Scholz but it has helped salvage some of his image as a leader of Europe. US, European Union, and gas. These three things. Let's discuss this. The US's insistent opposition to Nord Stream 2 over three administrations, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, has revived discussions on an old question asked whenever the US enters an area of conflict. Quote, Is it all about the oil, or in this case, gas? man oil and gas man us is so obsessed with it and they should be because they are the leaders of the world especially when it comes to the economic powers and they're starting to see it uh, diminish a little bit because countries like russia and germany are interlinking themselves and becoming more interdependent the eu imports less than five percent of its gas from the us the top four suppliers are Russia at 41%, Norway at 16, Algeria at 7.6 and Qatar at 5.2 according to 2019 figures. But as a net exporter of LNG which is uh, LNG is uh, liquefied natural gas yeah, but as a net exporter of LNG since the middle of the last decade the US wants to expand its markets and reach in the continent. According to one estimate 23% of US exports of gas are to the EU now. And in 2021 hit a high of 21 billion cubic meters among the buyers are france italy spain greece portugal and host of smaller countries u.s exports are seen by some as vital to the diversification of europe's energy supplies and its energy security in january in a war like atmosphere europe imported more gas from the us than from russia damn nord stream capacity Nord Stream 2 is an expansion of Nord Stream, which became functional in 2011. Like the first pipeline, Nord Stream 2 comprises two pipelines with the identical combined carrying capacity of 55 billion cubic meters of gas per year. Russia is reported to have exported 168 BCM to Europe through this and other pipelines transiting through Ukraine in 2020. Germany was the biggest buyer at 56 BCM Italy bought 20 BCM and Netherlands 11 BCM Which is billion cubic meters? Russia's economy is mainly dependent on exports of gas and oil and Europe is its largest buyer Nord Stream 2 can cut both ways. This is perhaps why Scholz was moved enough to say it was his quote damn duty to prevent war That is true prevent war man and make sure that people get gas so that they're able to turn the lights on and read a book but this entire geopolitical situation is quite interesting and uh, it's anyway anyone's guess as to why these things are happening um the more i read about the nord stream too it makes sense that the united states would want a conflict in the european continent because their exports are taking a hit because russia is uh, Becoming more and more dominant in its exports of oil and gas, which they are uh, extremely dependent on and it's their biggest do- Biggest product that they export. So we'll have to see how this develops, but it's really very interesting And with this I would like to end today's podcast of Nancoverse. I hope you guys found something of value and something that made your day better and more information for you guys I'm trying to get better at reading, I'm trying to get better at understanding these topics and this is so much fun for me. Um, I hope you guys liked what you listened to. If you liked it, do like the button, do do press the like button and also do press the subscribe button and uh, yeah, share it with your buddies, share it with your family so that they're able to listen to this and get an understanding of what's going on in the world. My aim is to talk to as many people as possible and bring as many valuable topics of information to you guys. And I hope everyone is doing well. Uh, Zero cost support to this channel would be to give it a subscription. So please do that. And I want to say thank you to all my new subscribers. Also, uh, the the podcast is on Spotify. If you want to listen to it seamlessly without having to, uh, you know, unlock your phone and all that stuff that happens in YouTube. So you can listen to the audio version seamlessly on Spotify and other streaming apps. I want to send everyone lots of love and lots of hugs and good health. Jai Hind.